Well, we're going to be uh, starting just a real short two-week series that I have titled Real ID, What the Church Is and Why. Real ID, if you don't know, is it's a new system that the government has come up with uh, as a means of trying to ensure that people are who they represent themselves to be. Whether it's a good idea or a bad idea, I'll leave for others to debate. But I thought about that in terms of the church. We call ourselves a church. We have the name church out front, but are we? And maybe the greater question is, what is a church? What is a church supposed to look like? And so I thought for the next couple of weeks we would examine that so that we make sure that we are who we're supposed to be, and if we're not, that we're moving toward becoming that. But how do you figure that out? I came up with something. My wife loves to do puzzles. Anybody else love to do puzzles around here? I don't. I don't really care for puzzles. To me, they're just an aggravation and a mess. But my wife loves them. She loves them. And when we were packing, I was just uh, reminded of how much she loves them because we had a whole garage full of the silly things, and we had to downsize a little bit. But um, at any given time, when my wife really gets excited about a new puzzle, I can always know what's going to happen. I'm going to walk into the living room, and, and on our sizable um, coffee table are going to be somewhere between five and 10,000 little pieces of cardboard, uh, all seemingly to me shaped the same, with little tiny stripes of color on them. And she's trying to assemble all of these disparate parts into one thing that creates a beautiful Image. And there's one thing that is always common whenever she's putting together a puzzle is that she always has the top of the box next to all the pieces because you need the top of the box to put the puzzle together. You need to be able to see what the picture looks like in order to figure out where each individual piece goes. I think that is a real nice image of how we go about figuring out how all of us, with all of our individual personalities and gifts and backgrounds work together to become what a church is supposed to be. And Paul sort of hit on that when he talked about the church. He described it to a human or compared it to a human body and said, just like a body has a lot of different parts that make up a human being, so also the church has lots of different parts. And you guys all come from different places. That's especially true in a non-denominational church. You got people coming from all different kinds of backgrounds. And you've been in, probably, unless you're brand new to the faith, you've been in all different kinds of churches. And you've seen that churches are as different as the people that comprise them. How do you know when you're in a good church? How do you know when you're in a bad church? Well, as always, the authority for that is the Scripture. The Scripture is, if you will, in using the analogy of the puzzle, it's the top of the box. It's what it's supposed to look like. And I don't think the church was ever more like what it was supposed to be than at its inception. And so for that, we're going to go back and take a look at it and examine to see what the church is supposed to be. And then in light of that, who we are right now, and then to examine how do we begin to progress more 
toward what we're supposed to be. So I'm going to invite you to turn to the book of Acts, chapter 2. And I'm going to tell you that the events of our story today are going to take place in the aftermath of Jesus resurrecting and then appearing to his disciples, giving them some last-minute instruction and encouragement and forgiveness and challenge, and then eventually ascending miraculously right back up into heaven. That must have been a sight. I have no idea what it looked like. And I have no idea really exactly where Jesus went. Did he just go into space? Did he slide into a black hole? Did he go into another dimension? I have so many questions when I get to heaven, but they will have to wait. But anyway, he left them, but he told them that he wasn't going to abandon them. That when he left, someone else would come, and that someone else was the Holy Spirit of God, and that under the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, that they themselves would be able to do everything that he had commanded them to do, and even more that he, than he himself had been able to do, because they would be multiplied in number. And we see that 50 days after the Passover celebration, at a Jewish festival known as Pentecost, or actually they knew it as Shavuot, that's a Hebrew word that means weeks. It was the festival of weeks. And during that festival in the city of Jerusalem, as the disciples were all gathered together and praying, I have no doubt praying, whatever this thing is that you're going to send, God, send it. And all of a sudden, it arrives. It transforms them. It, it, the Spirit of God somehow miraculously fuses with them in their humanity and empowers them and enlightens them and then inspires them to go out and to start sharing the good news throughout the city of Jerusalem, which at this time was packed because it was a festival, which meant that there were people, there were God-fearing Jews that had come from all over the countryside. Not just Israel, but Jews that were living outside of Israel had come, probably originally for Passover, and now we're here for the Festival of Weeks. Plus, Jerusalem was a metropolitan city anyway, and there were a lot of different languages spoke there. And so communicating the message of the gospel would be problematic, except for the fact that the Holy Spirit was ready. And what the Holy Spirit enabled these individuals to do was to not only go out and share the gospel with power, but also to be able to speak a multiplicity of languages that were being spoken by the people that were visiting. And so that's what they do. Eventually, some people in the crowd are amazed because they're like going, how are you? You just look like a fisherman to me. You look like someone itinerant. I mean, if you've got your GED, I'll eat my hat. How is it that you know my language and I come from a place where that language, even where I'm from, not too many people speak that language, and you're speaking it perfectly. You don't even have a foreign accent. And so the people that were seeing this happen were being stunned by it. Others who were watching them speak in languages they didn't understand began to think, are these guys drunk? They're just babbling. And so because confusion was starting to arise, Peter stands up and he says, no, listen, we're not drinking. First of all, it's too early in the morning for something like that. Nothing like a little humor to get the crowd going. And then... Uh, 
He steps forward and he says, no, no, we're not drunk. This is an indication that God is among us. And let me explain to you what we're saying and why we're saying it. And so then he takes the Old Testament, which would have been um, recognized as an authority by the people who were there. I mean, most of them were Jews, and even those that were not Jews were God-fearing, and they were seeking the God of Israel. And he goes back to the Old Testament and starts quoting out of Joel, which some of you probably couldn't find with both hands. And he finds Joel, and he starts quoting from it, which is amazing. Peter wasn't a Bible scholar. And yet he quotes from Joel in order to explain that this was something that the Old Testament prophet long ago had said would happen. Even the part about speaking in foreign languages. And then he takes it from there and he begins to make a flawless presentation of the implications behind the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, who was the Christ. And as Peter speaks... Because it is infused by God's Spirit, many of the people that are listening to him begin to grieve their duplicity in the death of Christ, their folly in not recognizing that he was, in fact, the Messiah. And then they turn to him for forgiveness and in recognition recognition of uh, exactly who he was. And with that, three thousand people are suddenly added to the group of disciples that were in Jerusalem. But that created an issue. What do we do with all this influx of new blood into the church? And the apostles had to immediately get organized. They knew that these people were going to need to be taught, and they were going to need to be tended, and so they do. They quickly get organized. They quickly assimilate everyone into cohesive sub-communities of faith and fellowship and function. And what they did with these new people that were coming in is what the structure of the church became. And so it behooves us to take a look at what that was. So I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 42. Luke writes... And they, speaking of the New Testament church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Okay. So what we see were there were four primary things that this new group of believers were devoted to. The word devoted is important. In Greek, it's proskartereo. That means nothing to you. But really, in Greek, it's two words that are sort of combined together to form a singular thought. Pro, we understand that today because we have the, you know, pro versus con. Even in Greek, pro meant to move toward something. And the root of the second section of that word is actually kratos. That may not mean anything to you, maybe if you're a gamer, but kratos was a Greek god. Kratos was the Greek god of strength. You may not know Kratos. You probably know his sister. She was a goddess in Greek mythology, and her name was Nike. We all know that Nike is the goddess of really cool athletic shoes, right? <laughs> no, of course, Nike is the goddess of victory. So to say 
proskartareo in Greek meant to move towards something with strength, with passion, with power. It denotes steadfast, single-minded fidelity to a certain course of action. Okay, so what were they proskartareo toward? What were they focused on? What was their passion? Let's take a look at the four things. The first and foremost passion was the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching. In Greek, apostle is really a transliteration. The Greek word is apostolos, and it meant basically someone who was sent out by someone else as a messenger, envoy, delegate, or representative. It would be another way of saying an ambassador. The apostles were ambassadors. They were representatives. They were envoys for someone else. They were messengers for Christ. It was the message of Christ that they continued to declare. And in a greater sense, they were messengers of God. We see in Acts chapter 1, before Jesus left, he told the disciples, you're going to be my messengers. You're going to take the things that you have seen, the things that you've been taught, you're going to take those things out to a lost world. We also see in Ephesians 2.20 that the apostles were going to become the founders and leaders of the New Testament church, which is what is happening here. So they were messengers, and they were founders. And they were comprised of certain men. First, the original 11 surviving disciples. And then, after Judas killed himself, they made a replacement for him by praying and casting lots, and that became Matthias, Acts chapter 1, verse 26. I find it interesting that Matthias is introduced in Acts chapter 1 and then disappears. You never hear his name again or read anything more about what he did. Now, I'm not trying to disrespect poor Matthias. I'm sure he was a godly man, and obviously he was someone who was a witness to Christ's teaching and resurrection. But... There is someone else who comes along a little bit later who, it doesn't say in the scripture, but I tend to believe, was actually the one that God was going to use to take Judas's place. His name was Saul, and at the time he didn't know that he was going to be an apostle, but he would soon find out. And under a special dispensation that we read about in Acts chapter 9, Jesus calls Paul, he reveals himself resurrected to him, teaches Paul, and then commissions him into the work. And Paul not only becomes an apostle, but in the years that follow, Paul becomes probably the most prominent and important apostle of all. Okay, so that's who the apostles were, but we're told that what the church was focused on was not so much the apostles themselves, but on what they were teaching. In Greek, the word is didache, and it means an established body of material that is accepted as reliable and authoritative. It's kind of the root of our word today, doctrine. In, in fact, it's the root of our word uh, didactive. Maybe you've heard of didactive reasoning or the didactive teaching method. It's a method of teaching which involves taking an authoritative um, established uh, gathering of information and teaching it 
to view. It's how every school teacher today, for the most part, teaches, is by taking information and translating it to the people. So we see that what they were focused on was the collected, authoritative teaching of the apostles. What was that? What did the apostles teach? When, when the apostles were instructing these people, what were they instructing them into? Well, some very basic things. They were giving their eyewitness account of who Jesus was. I mean, that's pretty important, right? I mean, we have the New Testament today, and, and it reveals to us Christ. What the New Testament is is basically a written assemblage of what the apostles in the first century were teaching the church. They were telling the church their eyewitness accounts about what Jesus said, what he did, what happened to him. I mean, John basically goes so far as to say is we're not just giving you theory. We're telling you about someone that we knew, someone that our hands touch, that our eyes see, that our ears hear. So it involved their eyewitness accounts of his life and his death and most importantly his resurrection, that he was raised from death. That was most important. They also begin to translate the content of his years of teaching and all of his miraculous activity they document. They would also teach what they understood from the Old Testament. We've already seen that Peter did that when he's you know, addressing the crowd. He, he drags out Joel and starts quoting from him. So what was in the Old Testament is given context by the instruction, by the didache of the apostles. And then also they received new information new prophecy that they translated. So there was a lot to teach, a lot to learn. And so they spent a lot of time focused on that. The New Testament church was a teaching church. And because they were so well taught, they were prepared. Now, it wasn't just that the apostles taught it, and that's what gave it authority. What really gave it authority was that what the apostles taught was right out of the Scripture and in agreement with the Scripture. How do we know that? Well, when Paul meanders into Europe, Greece in particular, and winds up in a place called Berea, he gets there, and they listen to him, and the first thing they do is say, hmm, that sounds good, hang on a second, and they grab the Old Testament scrolls and start going through line by line to make sure that what he said it said, it said. And that gave weight to what the apostles taught because they were teaching right out of the Scripture. We see later on in Revelation chapter 2 that when some people showed up at Ephesus, which was another New Testament church in modern Turkey, and began to represent themselves as apostles. Well, we're apostles just like Paul. We're apostles just like Peter. And the church listened to them, took note of what they said, and the first thing they did, they went to the Scripture, and they said, eh, sorry, doesn't square up. You're giving us a false gospel. So the Scripture was the background and the foundation upon which the apostles' teaching was received. So that's the first thing. The apostles' teaching. In each one of these four areas here, Luke is going to use a definitive article of the in front of it, which means that it was distinct. There was something unique about it. The apostles' teaching was the doctrine of the church. It was the standard by which the church did everything, which teaches you and I how important it is that no matter what kind of a good idea we think we have about what the church ought to be or ought not to be, it always has to square with scripture. 
The second thing that they were uh, passionate about was the fellowship. Now, in Greek, the word is familiar. It's koinonia, and it just means to be in partnership with others, in community, to do life together. The fact that Luke uses that definitive article again means that there was something unique about the fellowship of these people. They had a relationship with one another that was unique from every other relationship. And I think this is so important. They had an unusually tight-knit and externally recognizable bond with one another. The one thing that the outside world saw about their relationship with each other was that it just was uncommon, unexpected, surprising. And what was it? Well, first of all, it was love. Jesus said, you'll know my disciples by their love. And that was one of the things about them. They loved each other way more than most religious groups loved each other. And they were unified, and they were loyal. And that relationship, that community life, that partnership that they had forged was something that even the outside world, even the skeptical outside world could look at and say, wow, I've never seen anything like it. This, the dynamic between these people. We'll explore that more in a little bit. So they had the apostles teaching. They had the fellowship. The next they had the breaking of bread. Now, again, the fact that there's a definitive article means that what is being spoken about here is more than just having dinner together, which, by the way, they did a lot of. They ate together a lot, but this is more than that. When it says the breaking of bread, I think it's talking about the uniquely Christian practice of reenacting the Lord's Supper. Paul sort of explored that in 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, The New Testament church would have a celebration together regularly where there seemed to be, uh, where they would have, I guess, the ancient equivalent of a potluck. People would bring food and they would dine together. Nothing brings the church together faster and stronger than a good potluck. And then they would celebrate, they would reenact the Paschal dinner where, where Jesus basically said, this is my body, this is my blood. Why was that important, that they were so dedicated to that sacrament of the church? Well, think about what, what we call it today, communion. Think about what that is. Paul makes it very clear in 1 Corinthians 11 that when we have communion, it is a time for self-examination. Is it not? It's a time before we just go up and say, hey, hand me some bread and some grape juice. It's a time when we're supposed to stop and say, wait a minute, this is a serious thing. This is being related to what Christ did on the cross. So I need to stop and make sure that I'm coming correct. Make sure that I'm approaching God in the right attitude. Otherwise, like Paul said, I might be eating and drinking judgment to myself. So first of all, communion was a time of self-examination. It was a time when sin got confessed. Paul made it very clear. Don't come and take communion if you're not willing to turn from your sin because you're just inviting God to deal with you. He takes the death of his son very seriously. Paul even goes so far to say, that's why some of you are sick. And by the way, that's why also why some of these chairs here are empty and are not going to be filled by the same people anymore. God takes it very seriously. So self-examination, confession of sin. It also has to do with reconciliation of broken relationships. Boy, I had no idea communion was so loaded with meaning. Yeah, 
Jesus said, if you go to the altar and remember on the way that there's something between you and your brother, or by inference, between you and your sister too, that you need to correct that first before you come to God. God is not interested in your religious activity if you're not willing to make relationships that are broken and waiting on you to do something about it right. So there's that. There's reconciliation. And then there's also anticipation of Christ's return. When we take communion every time, we're essentially saying, Christ, come quickly. May the next time we celebrate communion, may you be at the table with us. No wonder they were so committed to this activity. It was real important. That means that the New Testament church was constantly in a condition of self-examination. Am I right before God? They were constantly asking themselves, am I in sin? And if so, I need to get right. They were constantly asking themselves, is there somebody that's been hurt by me, offended by me, that I need to go make it right? Or has someone hurt and offended me, and I need to go forgive them? What an unusual thing. It was about reconciliation and about anticipation. It was a place where people were constantly, constantly thinking, what if he came back today? Wouldn't that be awesome? You know what? I find that a lot of times this is missing from churches. But I think if we begin to focus on it, it'll begin to change the dynamic between one another. Our dynamic between God making sure that we're coming right before him, and our dynamic with each other too, making sure that we're not purposely trying to hurt each other or allowing pride to keep division. One of the saddest things about church is how many people that are sitting there wounded and nobody cares enough to try to do anything about it. So that's the third thing, the breaking of bread. And then lastly, well, here's an obvious one, the prayers. Notice it says the prayers. What does that mean? Well, it means that prayer was something that was purposeful in the church. It wasn't the way we do prayer today. Oh, my wife is so sick. She's really sick. Would you pray for me? Hey, man, gotcha. I'm going to pray for you. And we don't until we see them. And then we're like, oh, what was I supposed to pray for? What was I supposed to pray for? We're not purposeful about it most of the time. And I'm going to tell you what. If you want to have an empty room, host a prayer meeting. Unless people are in trouble, then all of a sudden they want prayer. But most of the time, the, the saddest, most empty time of any church activity is prayer. And yet they were devoted to it. They pursued it with strength, with passion. It was their lifeblood. Matter of fact, because we know that the Christian church was still very closely associated with the, the Judaistic practice of the temple... Jews back then, as they do today, pray three times a day. Did you know that? At morning, at noon, and at night. So they were at least praying three times a day. But we also see in Acts 12, too, that this group didn't just wait for the morning, noon, or night prayers. When something came up, they got together and they prayed about it. For example, when Peter got arrested, James has already been executed, and Peter's on death row. They got together and did some serious praying because they knew they were about to lose one of the most important leaders of their church. Nothing presses us toward prayer like trouble, like heartache, and like fear. And yet we're always so amazed when God does things in our life that cause us <laughs> to be afraid. I don't think he purposely wants to hurt us, but I think he does want us to draw close and he knows what works. 
Okay. So that's what they were focused on. They were reliant upon God. Prayer is a demonstration of the fact that we know we don't have all the answers, we're not in control, and we desperately need God to act on our behalf. And what was the result? Verse 43. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Notice it says awe came upon every soul. There was a sense of fearful astonishment at all of the miraculous activity that the apostles could do. And Greek, the word that's, that's translated as um, awe, it's actually phobos. It's the root of our English word phobia, fear. Most of the time we would define it as unreasonable fear. Well, in this case, the fear was very reasonable. And you know what's also interesting? It says that it came on everybody, not just the religious. Everybody was being affected by what the apostles were doing. Now, for some, for the people of faith, what the apostles were doing was stirring up reverent awe, worship, amazement. But not everybody felt that way. People on the outside looking in, what they felt was troubled, fearful, anxious. They probably didn't want to spend a lot of time thinking about it. And when they did, it disturbed them. And it says that they were doing many wonders and signs. What we discover is, is that the miraculous activity that the apostles were able to do was not all the same. Not all miracles are the same, not just in their, in their manifestation, but in their purpose. We're told that there are two different kinds of miracles that were being performed here. One is wonders. In Greek, the word for wonders, it's teras. It is the root of our English word terror or terrified. Some of the miracles that they were doing were terrifying some of the people. I think those miracles were designed to grab attention. They were designed to wake up a world that was ambivalent and antagonistic and to cause them to have to stop and say, what? is going on here. What's going on here? These guys are doing things that can't be done. So that's the first kind. The first kind were the attention grabbing. The second kind, we're told, were signs. In Greek, the word is samion. It means a distinguishing mark of identification. Samion is the root of an English word that may not be familiar to you. It's a semaphore. If you've ever been in the Navy, you may know what I'm talking about. To do semaphore is to use flags to send a message to someone. Maybe you've, any of you old enough to remember the Beatles? Okay, all of you with gray hair, you remember the Beatles. If you remember the Beatles album, Help, remember they're standing on the front and they're all using their hands? That was semaphore. They were supposed to spell out the word help in code. Unfortunately, they didn't wind up doing that because the photographer didn't think it was very photogenic, so they spelled something else out that makes no sense. But that's semaphore. A semaphore is to use a sign to communicate a message. Use a flag in this case. 
So what we're told was that some of these messages were designed to send a message. Isn't it interesting? There are two types of miracles. One stops you and grabs you and forces you to have to deal with what's going on. And then while you're doing that, God communicates what he wants to communicate. Here's the message God wants to send to you. And that's what the apostles were able to do. Verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Okay. Now we're getting to why their relationships with one another were so unique. It says that they believed. And their belief was the banner that knit them together. In Greek, the word belief is pistuyo. It means to place confident trust in something, to be fully persuaded to the point of action. What were they putting their confident trust in? What the apostles were declaring. They were declaring the story of Jesus. They were telling about all the miraculous things he did, all the mind-boggling things he said, the way he conducted himself unlike anyone else, the way he raised from the dead. They were communicating that story. And they were taking the Old Testament and proving that Jesus was the one that had been promised to come to Israel. He was, in fact, the Messiah. And they were receiving new revelation from God, which helped explain other things that people didn't really quite get. And then lastly, as a demonstration that what they were saying was true, they themselves did things that grabbed people by the throat and pointed them to God so that they would have this message verified. And because of it, they were all together and had all things in common. Now, this is the unity. This is the bond of the church. It says, it describes them saying they were all together and they had all things in common. Ever been in a church like that? I've been doing this a long time. Yet. It's interesting. It doesn't mean I don't think that they mindlessly agreed on every single topic in life. I think what it means is that despite their multitude of differences, because come on, we're different from each other. We're different ages. We've had different experiences. We have different personality, different character, different maturity. We have a lot that separates us. And there's nothing new about that. In Colossians 3.11, it sort of describes the church as this crazy place filled with these wildly divergent people, and yet somehow they were together. Why? Because of their belief, because of their faith. Their faith caused them to restructure their priorities. For example, their pride. They're not going to get their feelings hurt so much because these relationships and this faith, the kingdom of God, is more important. Their family. They're not going to listen to what their mom and dad are saying about how they need to get out of it, how it's a cult, because they know that it's true. The kingdom of God, because of their faith, it superseded all political, cultural, social agendas, familial bonds, friendship. It took priority over everything. And while I've never been in a church that I could say literally down the line had everything in common, I have been in churches that had this priority. That despite their differences, they were always resolved with the understanding that God's kingdom as revealed in this local body is the priority. So when I get my feelings hurt, 
I have to go deal with it. I just can't go run and hide, get mad, take my ball and go home. Or when I disagree with someone, I work through it in a godly way and don't stir conflict and divide the church. Or when I'm confused about something, I don't sit back and start issuing accusations. I go try to figure out what the truth is. They prioritized their relationships with one another, which were based in faith in what the apostles had taught, and therefore they were being drawn together, drawn together, drawn together. And what was the manifestation of that? They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Interesting. That the thing that Luke chose to present as a proof text for the fact that these people had a unique community together that was based on faith, that was grounded on what the apostles were teaching, is the fact that their finances were in agreement with their faith claims. You know, it's easy to talk big about your spirituality and your faith and your walk with Christ. And I don't want to be too crass here, but I'm going to tell you, one of the first indications that maybe it isn't what you think it is, is how you view money and how you spend it. In this case, their finances were a reflection of the fact that they believed this message, were committed to this community, and nothing was off the table. Not even their money. Whew. You know, because of the timeless failings of human nature, which is basically our tendency to trust in wealth above everything else, no matter what we say, Jesus talked about that in Luke 12, that we are just, we always make money more important than everything else. That's, we have to overcome that, and the only way is through faith. And that's why the ultimate test of any faith claim comes down to how we view those things. How do we view our possessions? How do we view the money we have in the bank, the savings we have, the property we own? How important is it to us? Do, do we draw a line between the way we behave in the faith community and the way we behave financially? I mean, these are uncomfortable questions, but in James 2.16, you really want to get uncomfortable. He says basically that if your finances don't align with your faith claim, then somebody on the outside has every right to bring into question your faith claim. And by the way, they do all the time. What's the number one issue that most people on the outside of any church say when you say, hey, would you like to come to church, or what do you think about this? They always say the same thing. I don't want to go there because it is full of hypocrites. And most of the time that has something to do with not just morality but also finances. The New Testament church apparently understood this and embraced it. And not because they were being chided or guilted into doing so, you know, I heard about a guy one time who told me that at his church that they, they took um, three offerings one Sunday. And the, and the pastor, because he, he had the guts, they were trying to fundraise for something. They took the first offering, and he had the guy come, well, how much was it? No, 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 hold on, stop. Back up through there again. He did it three times. I don't know that that's God-honoring. I get what he was after, but I would imagine you had a pretty angry congregation by the time he was done. We don't bring everything into alignment because somebody makes us feel guilty or somebody yells at it at us. We do it because we want to. And that comes back to the love that was driving these relationships. They weren't held together by denominational bonds. 
They were held together by relational bonds, love for God and love for each other. And so there was, we see that there was a need. It wasn't just, hey, give your money because you need to be giving your money. There was a need. The giving was need-driven. And because they believed in the community and saw the need, then they stepped forward with their finances. And they started selling everything they had. Now, not every single thing. They still had to live. But I think the things that the people that could afford it sold more, gave more. Those who couldn't gave what they could. But it was all from the heart. It wasn't because they had to. It was because they wanted to. You know, somebody once said that no one who truly knows Christ could bear to have too much when their brothers and sisters have too little. And so they were selling what they had, and then they were taking it, we are told, to the apostles, and then the apostles were distributing the proceeds as anyone had need. Now, this is important. They weren't just handing out money willy-nilly. They were making sure that the supply met the need, which means there was some structure, there was some organization to it. it there was careful vetting to make sure that the funds that were being given weren't being funneled to the fraudulent or to the lazy, but to the deserving. In Acts 4, we see the apostles administered this, but they also deputized others to take care of the duties in Acts 6. Okay. That's your first look at what the New Testament church was like. Kind of a strange place, huh? A unique place where people were doing a lot of different things that maybe that hasn't been your experience with church. Maybe you've been in some churches that have been divided. Maybe you've been in some churches that neglect God's word. Maybe you've been in some churches that don't really care about praying. Maybe you've been in some churches that never examine themselves to make sure that they're pleasing to God. There's all different kinds of churches out there. But what we want is to be the kind of church that is honoring to the Lord. And to do that, we have to ask ourselves some tough questions and take a look at this picture. And next week, I'm going to pick it up right from here, and I'm going to show you the rest of the picture of what the New Testament church looked like. And then I'm going to give you some application as to what we here are going to do. Because we're restructuring our entire vision statement, I'll give you a little sneak preview, in order to make sure that we're aligned with what it says about the New Testament church. And by the way, I don't want you to think that I don't think we are pursuing that. I think we are. It's not like I'm trying to come here and reinvent the wheel. But I do believe that God wants his church to be constantly examining themselves to make sure that where they are and when they are, they are, in fact, what they represent themselves to be. That's what we want to be, right? You're not sure? shell-shocked. Well, I hope you are. Next week, we'll pick it up and finish it up. Father, thank you for the truth of your word, Lord. Sometimes these things are hard to hear, and it's not my intention to guilt anybody or to yell at anybody, Lord. It's my desire that I would instruct just as I instruct myself. I love this church, Lord. I love these people. I, I wouldn't be here if I didn't. And I see the potential within them, Lord. I see not just what we are, but what we can be. Sometimes it's so easy to look back on previous mistakes and struggles and to just project that forward and think that there's nothing else possible but that. But Lord, I know that we can become exactly what you want. And the more we do that, the greater this place will be, the more inviting it will be, and the more it will grow spiritually and in every other way. Father, thank you for the privilege of being a part of it. 
And I look forward to what you're going to bring in the days ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.